Welcome back to the History of Cologne, a podcast about the city of Cologne in today's Western Germany that is over 2,000 years old. But until it became what it is today, this old city on the Rhine has endured a colorful and rich past. Hence, it is full of events and narrations that represent European history as a microcosm. Presenting this week's random fact about Cologne, Cologne has a big museum at the Rhine River that's just about chocolate. Inside, there's a big chocolate well where staff members give you small waffles with chocolate for free. They remember who already got one. So don't try to get one again pretending you never got any of it. Or maybe ask them politely. If you have kids, chances are higher that you will be successful. Let's jump to the intro. In the last episode, the golden age of Cologne and Roman times slowly but surely ended. I only noticed recently that I always talk about Roman Cologne. Unfortunately, this inevitably gives the impression that only Romans lived here, but the province of Lower Germania and its capital Cologne were a melting pot of the ancient world of that time. Besides Romans and Ubians, other Germanic peoples, Gauls, Spaniards, Greeks and also a small Jewish community lived here. We will come to the latter in our episode, which will deal with the numerous religions in Cologne in Roman times. Several crises and catastrophes at the end of the second century had finally led to the crisis of the third century. And with the self-proclamation of Posthumus as emperor near our city, Cologne had returned to the stage of world history with a loud bang for the first time in 150 years. Unfortunately, it still applies. Although we roughly know what has happened in these decades, the historical sources are extremely thin, although not as thin as the period between 100 to 250 CE, when we have no written records of Cologne at all, but still so sparse for the middle of the 3rd century that I still find my comparison of an earlier episode appropriate. As far as these sources are concerned, this period has been handed down to us as if we had no film recordings of the entire events of the Second World War, no reports of contemporary witnesses whom we might even have known ourselves, and not a single document or other source about it. Only a short letter between Churchill and Roosevelt who write about a single event in 1941. That in comparison is roughly how we have our sources about ancient Cologne during the crisis of the 3rd century. But fortunately, the researchers who worked through this period used far more than to unravel this eventful time. On the one hand, archaeology is of course helpful here again. Consecration stones, pathstones and yes, grave inscriptions are once again important documented contemporary witnesses which have survived the time comparatively well due to their stone material. And for this time also, coin finds from the earth from this time will be a great help to us. But there's more to it than that. Let's just follow up on the events of the last episode. In the year 260, a dispute arose between Silvanus, a follower and representative of the emperor's son Saloninus, who officially exercised command on the Rhine and the army commander Posthumus on the other hand. Posthumus had already fended off the Germanic invasions of the Franks and Alemanni on the Rhine for several years with some success. When it came to the question whether the booty they collected from the Germanic tribes should remain in the hands of the emperor, or further on in the hands of the soldiers who had already divided the booty among themselves, their situation escalated. 
Posthumus was in no way prepared to take the booty away from his soldiers again. In times when Roman armies constantly killed their commanders when it seemed useful to them, Posthumus' refusal to Saloninus and Silvanus was perhaps not so irrational. Silvanus and the emperor's son Saloninus fled behind the safe city walls of Cologne then. Posthumus had then seized the opportunity and had himself proclaimed emperor by the Roman troops on the Rhine. If he wanted his seizure of power to run smoothly, Posthumus had to create facts quickly on the Rhine. And quickly before Emperor Gallienus, who was the actual Roman emperor and father of Saloninus, staying in the distant Danube region in what is now Hungary, could react. And if you already have an army, why not use it? Posthumus marched with the army directly towards Cologne. But well, maybe that was too much recap from the last episode. So what happened finally? Saloninus and Silvanus were now besieged in Cologne and were trapped. The citizens of Cologne themselves had been taken by surprise by these events. Of course, they had not been asked whether they wanted to take part in this conflict at all. And now, the Roman army was besieging the capital of the province, which this army was actually stationed here for to protect. How could Cologne survive that? It wouldn't be long before Posthumus and his army built siege weapons. Cologne might withstand Germanic tribes, but not a battle-tested Roman army. And here it is again, gone for almost 200 years. But now it's making a comeback. We had missed it terribly since the Batavian uprising. And what in the world am I talking about? Well, the ability of the citizens of Cologne to be flexible in their loyalty. And to have the right instinct for who is going to be the coming power in the area. Here, too, there was a trade-off to be made by the city of Cologne. Protect and defend Saloninus? He was the son of Emperor Gallienus, who was already a sub-emperor under his father. But it was literally impossible to ignore that his entire army had mutinied against him. And what did it mean to be an emperor, let alone be a sub-emperor in those times? They came and went every second anyway. Or would it be better for Cologne to acknowledge the reality? Rome, it seemed, was once again far away, and Posthumus and his army were here on the doorstep, in a very literal kind of way. Posthumus had nothing against Cologne. On the contrary, he had proved himself quite capable of defending the city and the surrounding area. Hmm. You might guess where I'm leading to. The siege must not have lasted long, therefore. Unfortunately, we do not know the exact events due to the lack of sources, but it is highly probable that the people of Cologne and also many former followers of Saloninus and Silvanus sent a delegation to Posthumus in front of the city. They offered to hand over the city. Furthermore, Cologne recognized the rule of Posthumus. And, well, uh, those two guys, Saloninus and Silvanus, would be delivered as prisoners to Posthumus. Both got murdered shortly afterwards. As barbaric as that act was, it should not surprise anyone anymore. Emperors came and went at one-second intervals. Cologne had once again changed sides without much bloodshed. Well, except for the blood of Salninus and Silvanus. But not only our Roman colony on the Rhine changed sides. All of Lower Germania and the neighboring province of Upper Germania joined Posthumus in this eventful year of 260. And not only that. 
all of the Roman provinces of Britain, Gaul and even Spain joined posthumous. That is simply all of Western Europe. Whether by choice or by military pressure, we do not know. Perhaps it was a mixture of the two. A third of the Roman Empire had simply said goodbye to this very empire with a big bang and declared its independence. But okay, it was nothing special. Provinces had split off several times before to help the usurper to conquer Rome, but that's exactly what didn't happen. Posthumus did not go to Rome. He stayed on the Rhine. And what made the whole thing more extraordinary? He made our Cologne on the Rhine, the new capital and imperial residence. You heard me right. Cologne was now the capital of... Uh, well, uh, of what actually? This empire, which had broken away from Rome, continued to see itself as the full Roman Empire, even if it didn't own the capital of Rome itself. For the actual Roman Empire in Rome, with Emperor Gallienus, what had happened there in the west of today's Europe was of course a catastrophe. For Emperor Gallienus, it was a bunch of renegade provinces that continued to belong to Rome. Oh yes, and the ruler of those renegade provinces had killed his son and heir. But the name for the kingdom of Posthumus would be helpful for us. Later research simply called this empire which had broken away from Rome and was de facto independent the Imperium Galliarum, which is just the translation for the Gallic Empire. And even though it never called itself that, I will call it that from now on for better understanding. But don't be mistaken, the term Gallic Empire doesn't mean it was run by Gallic people. It was still a Roman Empire with Roman culture, Roman administration and Roman armies. But the center of power laid in Gaul, so that's why they called it the Gallic Empire afterwards, I guess. But why do the people of Cologne do this? Why do they renounce the Roman Empire? They had lived in peace and prosperity for 150 years in Rome. I mean, you heard it the last two episodes yourself. Well, of course they had little choice when their army of posthumous laid siege to them. In the meantime, however, the feeling of having been abandoned by the central power Rome prevailed among the people of Cologne and many Romanized provincial inhabitants on the fringes of the empire. Rome wasn't what it used to be. Classical Rome as we often know it in a somewhat transfigured way no longer really existed. Great men like Caesar or Cicero or even the Roman peace, all that sounded like from a time long gone. This was due to the recent developments that had undermined and finally swept away the old order. The first two centuries of the Roman emperors had looked like this. Despite the emperor and the monarchy, the Roman Empire had remained what it was, a city that had conquered an empire. The political and military elites of the empire came from Rome, the surrounding area or at least from the Italian peninsula. The nucleus of the Roman elite were the old aristocratic families in the Senate and the equites, the members of the non-aristocratic but wealthy property owners. Although the Roman Senate had become largely politically powerless since the Caesars, it was here that the leading class of the empire continued to be socialized and educated. Whoever later wanted to become a governor in a distant province had to assert and prove himself in the Senate of the city of Rome in the first two centuries, usually 100% of the cases. Only then could you climb the political ladder within the imperial administration. 
All these men, the women, were unfortunately forbidden direct political participation. However, power-hungry they were, had been closely connected with the city of Rome and believed, like so many peoples before and after them in the course of human history, that they were destined by heaven and all the gods to build a mighty empire in this world. The numerous civil wars and internal conflicts within the empire at the end of the second century and then the crisis of the third century had successfully destroyed this order and the trust in it. In the civil wars and waves of murders against competing noble families in Rome, the numbers of families that had served the state, sometimes even for many centuries, became increasingly thin. At the same time, the importance of the military increased, and it did so in an anti-proportional way to the rest of the state. Of course, men like Caesar or Augustus had also gained their power through the military 300 years ago, but here it was still the case that military service served to make a political career in the institutions like the senate or the offices of the empire. And without them, they could not have administered the empire at that time, with the strengthening of the military as a factor of power also in political matters, this was no longer necessary. Emperor Gallienus himself had even explicitly ordered that from now on, senators were forbidden to serve in the military. And since the barracks emperors, it had also become obsolete to come out of the senatorial class to become a Roman emperor, that the Senate no longer had to agree to an emperor's elevation, let alone be asked about it, is certainly also obvious. Some historians, especially from older days, thought that the empire was in crisis because it was increasingly ruled by foreigners, non-Romans that is. This thought is probably based on the idea that only nations with a homogeneous population structure could function well, but I would like to counter this with two things. The Roman Empire had never been a state, not even in the pre-modern sense. Furthermore, even at the time of the Republic, when it only controlled the Italian peninsula, it had already been a multicultural union of peoples. Ironically, it was also the Hispanic Trajan in the year 98 who was the first foreigner to take the imperial throne. And under him, the empire flourished for many decades. So for me personally, other factors played a role. But yes, it is quite likely that with the numerous non-Roman commanders and emperors who were only proclaimed emperors somewhere far away from Rome by their respective troops, in the long run, the personal connection of the respective person to the city and the Roman tradition also decreased since they mostly lacked their socialization with the city. Our Cologne Emperor Posthumus is a clear example here. For a man like Caesar almost 300 years ago, a Roman Empire without the city of Rome would have been unthinkable. For Posthumus, who probably came from some place in Roman Gaul, it was simply pragmatism not to go to Italy to ruin yourself, like so many other usurpers before him. Rome was just one city among many. If his great empire in Western Europe worked so well, why take the risk of conquering Italy? Political power was now exercised directly by the army, and as has often been noticed, it was not the army that blindly followed its commander, but often these commanders were themselves driven by their own soldiers. Whoever was not considered competent enough as a commander of the troops quickly bit to dust. Posthumus must therefore have had an extremely competent effect on his subordinate soldiers, for in a short time he attained great power. 
Of course, he will have spent a lot of money for the loyalty of the troops. In the medium term, however, he certainly maintained the loyalty of his soldiers through his competence and his leadership, and thus the long period of survival of his Gallic Empire against Rome. This was accompanied, as already mentioned, by a general feeling in the provinces on the edge of the empire that they were no longer fully protected by Rome. The Franks and Alemanni invaded the Roman provinces with increasing impunity, and the emperors in Rome did nothing but slaughter each other in their struggle for power. So local powers had to help out when the distant Rome felt unable to do so. In this way, the exercise of power itself became more and more regional and personal. As someone in Cologne, you no longer felt bound to a firmly defined structure of rule such as an empire through tradition and common culture. Rather, you joined directly with a single strong man from the region who could provide protection. This was a way of exercising power that was later not entirely dissimilar to the early Middle Ages that came later. Here too, power would no longer be defined by culture, geography or tradition, but by the direct relationship between local elites and regional potentates with the appropriate means of power. But oh dear, let's go back to posthumous and Gallic Empire before you get bored about Roman history again. As I was saying, this Gallic Empire extended over the entire Spanish peninsula, Roman Britain, Gaul and the two Roman provinces of Upper and Lower Germania. I often read that today's city of Trier, at that time still part of the Roman province of Belgica, is said to have been the capital of this empire, but this is simply not true, it was Cologne. Of course, Cologne had a strategic importance. Here you were far enough away not to fear direct attacks from the rest of the Roman Empire, for Emperor Gallienus certainly tried to avenge his son and to reintegrate the renegade Gallic Empire but he failed twice in 261 and 265. How exactly the rule of Posthumus will have looked like in the Gallic Empire we can only guess as so often during this time. The Cologne Praetorium certainly served him as an imperial palace, with its size and furnishings met all the requirements of a representative building of the time. Posthumus did not have to set up a new administration for his Gallic Empire of course, he simply used the existing Roman infrastructure. But instead of going to Rome, all information and, for example, taxes were now sent to Cologne. It is certainly true that Posthumus named two consuls each year, as was customary in Rome for centuries. However, it is doubtful that these two consuls had a real position of power in the Gallic Empire. But they were necessary for quite everyday circumstances. In Roman tradition, years were not calculated after numbers, like we are right now in the year 2020, as in our modern times, but always according to the names of the acting consuls, since the consulship was limited to exactly that year. And what a miracle, the emperor himself was often one of those two acting consuls. Thus, the appointment of own consuls in the Gallic Empire was obvious. Posthumus certainly did not want to name the years after the consuls in Rome, with whom he was at loggerheads with. We only know about their existence and names of these consuls because they have been depicted on coins that were made by the Gallic Empire, but more than their names are usually not known. But this is a good bridge to the topic of coinage. Since at least the year 256, four years before Posthumus came to power, Cologne had had its own coin mint. It had probably already been established there under Emperor Valerian. 
This shows that here in Cologne was a center of imperial power, an emperor who, like all the rulers of Rome at that time, built his power solely on the military. Therefore, he had a great deal of interest in always being able to distribute coins quickly and efficiently to his soldiers. The existence of such a mint in Cologne therefore flatters our city. After all, maintaining a mint in Cologne meant that the city with its mighty city walls was considered safe but also significant enough. We owe a lot of knowledge from this surprisingly thin documented period to the mints, or better said, to the coins that were produced by it. The people and motives that were minted on the coins and the time of the issue tell us a lot, just like the names of some consuls of the Gallic Empire. Unfortunately, we cannot show how the rule of posthumous daily government program looked like. For a long time, it was rumored that Cologne even had its own senate. No, not the municipal senate that we already mentioned, but a new imperial one for the whole Gallic Empire. However, this is probably unlikely. The sense and logic of founding this actual republican institution simply made no sense. Posthumus had been able to build up his power without this institution anyway. But what Posthumus certainly created was his own Praetorian Guard. This is shown for example by corresponding gravestone finds from that time. Even if the manpower of this guard is not known, it must have been considerable. The guard was most probably stationed in Cologne, however, no corresponding barracks or anything else were found. Well, this is not surprising since Cologne was often rebuilt in Roman times. In general, the rule of Posthumus does not seem to have triggered any particular bigger building activity in Cologne. In any case, no finds have yet come to light. In terms of foreign policy, the situation on the Rhine was unchanged for the people who lived here. The conflicts against the hostile Germanic Franks and Alemanni on the other side of the Rhine were not only fought on land, but also fought on the water. So the Rhine and the North Sea are very likely to be the battlefields. This is also shown by coins minted at this time, which depict victorious battles of the Gallic Empire with ship motives. The Germanic invasions of the Alemanni and Franks continued during Posthumus' reign as emperor of the Gallic Empire, and Posthumus was not able to change this quickly in the beginning. Many divisions of the lower Germanic troops had been withdrawn by Emperor Gallienus for his Danube campaigns shortly before Posthumus took over. As a result of Germanic raids and attacks, the farms and suburbs in the Cologne area and in the province were often abandoned. This was already a long-lasting process, but it had gained rapid momentum, especially in the middle of the 3rd century. The provincial inhabitants who remained or had the appropriate financial or economic means began to fortify and secure their estates on their own. If the central Roman power was no longer able to do this, it was up to local authorities to provide security themselves, with walls, ramparts, trenches and the hiring of armed personnel. Many of these Roman courtyards, which were gradually fortified, turned into classic medieval castles in the long term. But many couldn't afford these measures. They resettled within Cologne's city wall or even moved far away to southern Gaul. Nevertheless, Posthumus seems to have had some success in securing the Rhine border. Here too, money coins serve as an important primary source. They call Posthumus as a Germanicus Maximus quasi as a victor over the Germans. Of course, this will not have been true and was rather a propagandistic exploitation of some victorious skirmishes against the Franks and Alemanni, but at least he had some successes to show. That kept Posthumus in power. 
However, he did not achieve these partial successes through military victories alone. As a local expert, Posthumus also knew how to negotiate diplomatically with Franks and Alemanni. After a few decisive victories over the Alemanni and Franks, it remained quiet on the Rhine front for a few years, at least from the year 263 onwards. Not for too long, but for many Cologne and provincial inhabitants, it was a real blessing after many years of raids from beyond the Rhine to get a small break. In the end, Posthumus could not have replaced the missing Roman soldiers on the Rhine from the ranks of the provincial population in and around Cologne. He was doing something that was soon to become common practice throughout the empire. He hired Germanic mercenaries on the other side of the Rhine and integrated them into his Roman army. Often among them were also Franks. So it happened that there were also fights now between Franks on the payroll of the Romans and Franks on the side of the Franks on the Germanic side. As I said, there had never been a Germanic or even Frankish national feeling. A united Franconian people did not exist for a long time and perhaps it may have never existed. One thing has certainly been undeniable. These Germanic mercenaries who entered the service of the Romans got their services well paid. There had to be an incentive not to go on another raid into Roman territory as a free Frank as usual. This sounds really like outsourcing ancient Roman style. Posthumus came to power in the year 260 and for nine years he reigned the Gallic Empire. In 269 he planned his 10th anniversary of his rule. Rich Roman Emperor, even if he was only the emperor of a partly Roman Empire, could look back on 10 years of reign during these times. A great flood of gold coins was minted in the year prior of this anniversary in the year 269 and was distributed as a gift to the soldiers. In this way, the emperor of the Gallic Empire wanted to ensure the loyalty of his soldiers in the 10th year of his reign. And there was plenty to celebrate. Posthumus' long adversary, Emperor Gallienus of the remaining real Roman Empire, had fallen victim to a conspiracy in Milan one year earlier in 268 and had been murdered a natural death for a Roman Emperor in these times. But then, someone spoiled the planned big party. In Cologne, Posthumus received news that a rebellion had broken out against him in Mainz, the capital of the neighboring province of Upper Germania in the south, and part of Posthumus' Gallic Empire. A man with a position in the Gallic Empire, unknown to this day, revolted against Posthumus. So he acted immediately and was able to defeat his rival in Mainz, taking the city himself in the process. And now the irony of fate struck. As a reward for their victory, the troops of Posthumus demanded that the defeated city of his rival, Mainz, be plundered naturally as a war booty. But Posthumus refused to do so as he was naturally interested as a ruler in an intact city, which was after all in his own realm. The refusal to pray had caused Saloninus and Silvanus life and prepared the way for Posthumus' rise to power nine years ago. Now, Posthumus himself was in the position of his former victims almost exactly ten years later to the day. And this refusal also brought his demise. His own troops murdered him. But before we continue chronologically, how did the people of Cologne judge and experience this time under Posthumus and the Gallic Empire? This is unfortunately not known to us due to the very few sources for this time, and we will face this shortcoming even more often, but 
we can still try to draw some conclusions by speculation. For example, trade which was important for the city being located at such important traffic junctions. Interestingly, the secession of the Gallic Empire does not seem to have had any negative effects on trade with the rest of the Roman Empire. Trade with Italy continued to be important for Cologne and of course vice versa, and was actively pursued further. The people of Cologne were also certainly glad that Roman Britain was also in the Gallic Empire. There they had built up an important trade network over the previous decades, a trade relationship that was to intensify over the following centuries, and in the very long term. So long term that immediately after the Second World War, Cologne and the English city of Liverpool found a town twinning in 1952. Farm enemies were to become best friends again, just as it had been the case for centuries. Financially, the time was certainly also tense for the people of Cologne. The tax advantages and exemptions that Cologne had enjoyed at least since the year 50, when it became a Roman colony through Empress Agrippina, were over at the latest when Posthumus took power in 260. The strategic and economic situation of the Gallic Empire was far too tense to allow this city, capital or not, to retain its privileges. The Antonine Plague had brought severe economic recession, and the numerous civil wars and conflicts in distant lands did their part in significantly weakening the economy. The people of Cologne probably even had to pay additional taxes, since it was considered as a rich city. Many Cologne citizens will surely have wished back the good old times of the year 100 to 250. Well, they would not come back in this form in Roman times. As already mentioned, we have hardly any archaeological remains of Posthumus himself in Cologne. No new magnificent buildings, new wells or a large infrastructure project seems to have been built or started during his reign in the city. Only the coins are physical evidence of his reign. Posthumus had been a rebel against the Roman Empire for quite some time from 260 to 269, but now he was dead. A small mistake had been enough and he suffered quasi the natural death like all barracks emperors of the 3rd century, getting murdered by someone. The Gallic Empire is of course extremely interesting as a historical topic, but it is rather interwoven with the history of the Roman Empire in general and we have heard far too much about that here again. Don't worry, in a few episodes, the Roman Empire won't bother us anymore. Sorry for the spoiler, but you should also know this after 1500 years. The Roman Empire, much as it pains me, no longer exists. Therefore, only the quick version here. The assassination of Posthumus and the stability of the Gallic Empire. Posthumus had possessed a military talent and diplomatic skill that was lacking in all of his successors, who were only short-lived or had not been ruling for long. The Roman Emperor Claudius II had taken advantage of the turbulence and power struggles within the Gallic Empire with lightning speed and had reconquered the Spanish peninsula for the Roman Empire. Therewith, the Gallic Empire had clearly shrunk. I do not want to sound impudent, but in the end, the following emperors and numerous counter-emperors of the Gallic Empire are hardly worth mentioning for us as a podcast about Cologne. Five years after the death of Posthumus in 274, the Gallic Empire was finally at an end. This time it was Emperor Aurelian, because Emperor Claudius had not been murdered, but died of a plague. Now it was Emperor Aurelian who invaded the Gallic Empire. 
Before that, Emperor Aurelian had reconquered the rich east of the Roman Empire like Egypt, the Holy Land and today's Turkey. So the Palmyrian Empire was already history when Aurelian decided himself to fight against the Gallic Empire. And so Aurelian again had extensive resources, material and people that he could throw against the Gallic Empire. The decline of the Gallic Empire in its last years is also visible on the coins that were minted at the end of it. While the coins and the posthumous were still of very good quality, even better than those from the real Roman Empire itself, they rapidly decreased in value until 274, meaning much less gold and silver was used to make them. This has always been a sign in the course of human history that the rulers were short of money and tricked in coin production. The last emperor of the Gallic Empire was a man with the name of Tetricus II, who is also of no importance for the history of Cologne. He lost the battle against Aurelian at Chalon, which meant the end of the Gallic Empire. Cologne came back under Roman rule. The question is, were there any punitive measures against Cologne this time, since it had broken away from Rome? As far as it seems, this was not the case. After all, the circle of those to be punished would have been much too large. For 14 years, the entire western part of the Roman Empire had been part of the Gallic Empire. There will hardly have been anyone with rank and name who did not cooperate with Posthumus and his successors. Aurelian, therefore, refrained from any punishment. Posthumus himself is no longer so present in the memory of the people of Cologne today. Unless you are a history nerd like you and me, I guess. But that shouldn't blame the today's citizens of Cologne either. From today's point of view, the achievements of Posthumus for the city are too small to be made widely known. Posthumus is regarded mainly as a person of Roman history in total rather than local Cologne history. It is obvious that the founders of the city like Augustus, Agrippa and his granddaughter Agrippina from the time of Cologne under Roman rule are better known to the local people today. Nevertheless, Posthumus, like many other celebrities of a city, is immortalized as a stone figure on the tower of the historic town hall of the city of Cologne. Due to an adjacent construction site at the moment, I am unfortunately not allowed to take a good photo of it. Ah yes, I should mention that. The tower of the historic town hall is full of historically important figures of Cologne's city history, from antiquity to the modern age. But maybe that would be a topic for a special episode, maybe? I'll think about it. Maybe, you dear listener, tell me your opinion about it if you want to hear more about it or not. So, let's end here today. It was a lot of stuff we had to deal with today. And, sorry, it was a lot about Roman history again, I know, but often that is our only approach to try to get a hold of what might have happened in Cologne at that time. As I said, soon this all will be over. Before we jump into the Cologne of late antiquity, it might be wise to take a step back again. In times like these, where there is so much trouble, what do people seek? Exactly, some good old faith. And the next episode will all be about faith. When we talk about the many religions that were practiced in Cologne in Roman times, and how a new religion about a Jewish carpenter would soon take over and shape Cologne for the next centuries to come. Until then, thank you for listening, and as always, auf Wiedersehen.